That's right. Applaud now because you might not want to later. You never know. It's great to be with you. I want to read a couple of passages of Scripture really quickly, and then I want to reflect on some things with you for just a few minutes. First passage of Scripture that I want to read is from Paul's letter to the church at Rome, chapter 5 of the letter, the book of Romans. And this comes at the end of a very densely reasoned. You don't often think about the Bible as being filled with passages that are densely reasoned. But much of the scripture is very thoroughly reasoned out, especially in the epistles, in instructions and also in theological teaching. But at the end of this section in which Paul is talking about the contrast and the juxtaposition and the opposition and the correction that takes place in Jesus, the contrast between Adam and Jesus, he ends by saying this in verse 18. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass, that is the sin of Adam, recorded in the book of Genesis, just as the consequence or the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. And then, remembering we are in the season of resurrection, which we're always in the season of resurrection because the resurrection is a once and for all reality, but we're in the season to especially focus upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to make reference back to his passion very quickly because you don't get the resurrection without the cross. The cross is meaningless without the resurrection. But the resurrection doesn't happen without the cross. From the gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 23, verse 44, it was about the, the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining. The curtain of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. A couple of guys from America were driving up Interstate 75, which runs all the way from Florida, where the weather is a tiny bit different than your weather right now, all the way to uh, Michigan and to the Canadian border. Comes up through Florida, Georgia, Tennessee, Kentucky, Ohio, into Michigan. Driving up I-75 in the state of Ohio, they come to this sign on the interstate that says, 
the name of the next town they're coming to. Now, one of these young men is from Georgia, and the other is a missionary kid who had been born in Peru. And the sign says, Welcome to LIMA, Ohio. The boy from Peru is so excited. He says, This is wonderful. Here we are, I'm so far from the country that I've grown up in, and we're coming to a town that is named after the capital city of the country that I've lived in my whole life. We're in Lima, Ohio. Well, the boy from Georgia was driving. He looks at me and says, son, I ain't from Ohio. But I'll tell you one thing, we're in America. This ain't South America. This is not Lima, Ohio, like the city where you come from. This is Lima, Ohio, like the beans they grow in the state where I come from, Lima, Ohio. And the boy from South America, from Peru, says, what do you mean, you idiot? These are northerners. They're sophisticated people. They're not like you southerners. Of course they would call it Lima. boy from Georgia says, well, you can call me all the names you want to, but I know one thing. This is the good old U.S. of A., and this is Lima, Ohio. It's Lima, it's Lima, it's Lima, it's Lima. Finally, the boy from Georgia says, we're going to settle this right now, son. Next exit, he wheels off the interstate, comes down to the street where the exit intersects, turns right, turns to the first establishment he comes to, wheels into the parking lot. They both jump out of the car. They go running through the front door, rush up to the counter where a young lady is standing there looking very startled. The boy from Georgia gets there first. He leans up and says, ma'am, we're sorry to startle you, but uh, you got to settle something for us right now. Would you please tell this boy in very clear, very slow English where we are right now? She leans forward and says, Burger King. <laughs> it's always good to know where you are. Here's a question. Where should Christians be living their lives? Should Christians be living their lives in Adam, in reference to the fallen one, in reference to who is not only our progenitor, but who is also the one in whose steps we all seem to follow? Adam, the one along with Eve, who made in the image of God in the Garden of Eden, nonetheless, went away that did not include living in the life and the power and the will and the love and the joy and the glory of God. Should we live in that or should we live in Jesus? Now, right off the bat, I want to say there's a real difference in believing in Jesus and living in Jesus. As a matter of fact, I'm not really impressed when people believe in Jesus. I live in Jackson, Mississippi. I am in the deep south. As a matter of fact, I am so much in the deep south of the United States of America. If you just go a few more miles from where I live, you're going to be in the Gulf of Mexico. Okay, I'm in the deep south. I'm not impressed when people believe in Jesus because in the deep south, everybody believes in Jesus. Even the atheists. I mean, we, you know, every, everybody believes in Jesus. Flannery O'Connor 
once spoke about the great uh, American uh, short story and writer and novelist of the South described the South as Christ haunted. He said, we may not be Christ centered, but we are Christ haunted. I'm also not impressed when people believe in Jesus because the scripture says even the demons believe and they tremble. There's a big difference in believing in Jesus and living in Jesus. Jesus himself was not simply interested in people believing in him because he said to his disciples when he called them, follow me, follow me. But there's a difference in trying to follow Jesus and living in Jesus because something of Jesus lives in you. The mystery and wonder of the Christian faith is precisely this. We are not called upon to believe in God. We are called upon to receive the presence of God. Now I want to examine, some, I want to examine that contrast for us just a little bit this morning and maybe get at what that might mean and look like in our lives. First off, that story in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve. You either think it's some, you know, you either like, well, it's the Bible, it happened long ago, so I believe it, or you think, well, it's, it sounds really like it's something that took place during the time of Middle Earth. You know, uh, maybe Gandalf was wandering around somewhere. It sounds just, it's not like in touch with our day and age, right? Or some people just dismiss it outright as a fairy tale. But I think there is incredible insight and meaning about the human condition woven into this story. I want you to think about this just a minute. If you remember in Genesis chapter 3, in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve have this encounter with a serpent, a snake, in the Garden of Eden. You remember, don't you, that the serpent walks up, because they don't slither at that time, I guess, walks up to Eve and looks at Eve in the garden and looks all, all, all around and says to her, this is the SBV, the Steve Blakemore version. Let me get this straight. You can't eat anything in this garden. Eve says, no, stupid. We can eat anything we want to. God just told us that the tree in the center of the garden, if we even touch it, it will kill us. We can't eat the fruit off of that tree. Everything else is ours. To which the serpent replies, aha, God knows that that tree will not kill you. God knows that if you eat of that tree, you'll become like God. Knowing good from evil. And then this scripture says that the woman, Eve, saw that the tree was good for food. I want you to think about that passage just a minute. Think about what's really going on there. What is the first temptation of humanity? Is it to eat the tree? I don't think so. The first temptation of humanity is to whether or not you trust what God has said. That's the first temptation. 
God knows that's not true. He told you that that tree would kill you. God knows better than that. As a matter of fact, God is holding out on you. As a matter of fact, if you do what God told you to do, you're going to miss out on something that is going to enhance your life, make you greater than you are right now. You will be like God, knowing good from evil. So, you can believe what God says or... You can listen to another voice. And then the scripture says, as I've already alluded, that the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Now, if God has said it's not good for food, how could she see that the tree was good for food? She was not observing some inherent quality of the tree itself. God had said, this tree is not good for food. That determines the quality of the tree. I think in that passage when it says she saw that the tree was good for food, we should hearken back to chapter 1 of Genesis and remember all those times when it says, and God saw that what he had made was good. That concept for God to see that what he had made was good doesn't mean God made it and then looked at it and said, wow, from the model I was working with, I've done a pretty good job. You know, that's a pretty good representation, a pretty good likeness. All right. Yay me. No, God is declaring the value, declaring the worth, declaring the goodness of that which he has made. God is determining what I have made is good because I say it's good. When Eve looks and sees that the tree is good for food, that's the Bible's way of telling us out of herself, along with Adam, she decided to define for herself that the tree was good for food. I know what God said, but it really seems to me that if I don't take this thing, I'm going to miss out. Now, let's not get too hasty in condemning Eve. You know, Dr. Gavel told you I was a pastor for 18 plus years. You know, in the time I've been a pastor, I can't tell you how many times I've counseled with couples in which one of the persons in the couple had committed adultery in their marriage. It's always a sad, terrible time of brokenness and pain. Inevitably, in the conversation with the person in the couple, be that the husband or the wife who had committed adultery, those persons will say something like this. I know that the Bible says adultery is wrong. But in my case, I felt loved. In my case, it brought me joy. In my case, he or she understood me. In my case, he or she knew me the way that my 
husband or my wife just doesn't. You see there? Well, I, I know that that's not the way to go, but in my case, what about when Jesus says something like, if someone offends you or slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Everybody says, well, I know that's what the Bible says, but that was a different time. You see, human beings, out of our frailty, out of our fear, out of our uncertainty, out of our insecurity, we have almost an instinct in us now to pull back and protect ourselves and say, wait a second, I can't trust myself to think something that I don't understand and can't see. Trusting myself to the way of God, wait a minute, I know best what's right for me. The real temptation in the Garden of Eden is whether or not you trust yourself to God or whether you believe that you can actually define for yourself your own life, whether or not you think you can, on the basis of your own wisdom, figure out what the best course of action is, whether or not you really know who you ought to be. That's the temptation for every human being, made in the image of God, made for God, made with a hunger for the eternal. We cannot escape it. We can only deny it. And yet every human being turns their sights upon lesser things again and again and again because trusting God is risky. Trusting ourselves to something beyond our own wisdom is scary. So what does Adam do? Adam and Eve. They don't trust God. They choose their own way. They enter into alienation. Alienation from God also alienation from each other. You remember, don't you? After they've done it, they clothe themselves with leaves because they can no longer be naked and unashamed in front of each other. For now, for the first time, Adam looks at Eve and he says, I wonder what she's thinking of me. Eve looks at Adam and says, I wonder if he thinks I'm fat. Let's get fig leaves. God says, why'd you do this, Adam? What did, what did you do? What have you, what have you done? Adam says, it wasn't me, God. It was that woman you gave me. Alienation from each other. And then God said, on the day that you eat of it, that day you'll die. Well, they didn't die exactly, but they did die. They lost the life of God, the life that God, had, his own life that he had placed in him death came upon their lives. Now, let's just flip the, flip the chart just a minute and then think of Jesus. The passage that I read to you today about Jesus on the cross. You remember all of the horrible things that occurred to Christ our Lord leading up to his passion. You remember his suffering. What we often don't really think about is the reality 
that Jesus chose the cross. You remember the Garden of Gethsemane when he's praying? If it's possible at all for us to accomplish the, the salvation of the world, Father, if there's some way for your will to be done and for the purposes for which I came to be accomplished, any way for that to be done except to drink this cup, let it pass from me. And he hears his father say, can't be done any other way. And so Jesus says, all right, not my will, your will be done. He chooses the cross. He trusts his father. Adam and Eve failed to trust. The biggest challenge in your life is to trust God. The biggest challenge in every person's life is to get to the place where they will trust themselves to God. It's the essence of human sin, not to be able to trust ourselves to God. Jesus trusts himself to God, and he walks into death. You remember that death is the end result of Adam and Eve's sin, right? Death came upon them, spiritual death. Jesus walks into death and destruction, his own death, his own destruction, he trusts his father. He walks into death knowing what it means to carry a cross. But you remember on the cross, all of those seven words that he uttered about various things. You know there in the gospel of Mark where the darkness descends upon the earth and Jesus cries out in a loud voice, cries out in his native tongue, Aramaic, but it means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I've heard dozens, if not hundreds, of people talk about that passage and say, at that moment, what was going on is that the eternal God, the Father, had to withdraw himself from his son because he could not look upon his son. He had to abandon his son on the cross because he was covered with bearing the sins of the world. I take a risk here because you may have heard this in theology class, but if you have, I got to take a risk anyway. I think that's wrong. The eternal father does not separate himself ever under any circumstances from the eternal son. That is impossible. Not only that, if God could not look upon the sins of the world when concentrated in his son, how in the world could God look upon the sins of the world when they're just spread out all over the world? But the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. On, in that moment, what's going on when the darkness descends? I think in that moment, we find our salvation maybe being really one when Jesus is faced with the stark temptation, maybe I really am a chump. Maybe I really have been stupid to believe I had a mission and a purpose from my father. Maybe in that garden, I was crazy to trust him and say, your will be done, believing he was going to be with me. Maybe right now when I need him the most, maybe right now when crunch time has come, maybe right now when my life is on the line, he is gone, everybody's gone, my disciples have left me, they mock me, the political powers have, have reduced me to a 
pile of human garbage on a garbage heap. The religious powers have condemned me as a blasphemer. I am nothing in anybody's eyes and my father has abandoned me. Or at least he was tempted to feel that. On the cross, maybe, just maybe, Jesus faces the ultimate temptation. The temptation that is at the heart of every other sinful failure in our lives. Will I trust myself to God or not? Scholars tell us, New Testament scholars tell us, and I think they're right. Jesus is quoting the 22nd Psalm, which starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And ends in a cry of victory of the faithfulness of God. And the last words on the cross from the gospel according to St. Luke are not, why have you forsaken me? But Father, into your hands I commit myself I have been committed into your hands. I have followed your will. I have done what you've called me to do. I know that you are with me. You cannot abandon me. Right now when times are darkest and life is leaving me, I know that you are there. I commit my life into your hands. What else is there to do after Jesus dies? except for death, the death that came because human beings would not trust God. What is there to have happen when a human being, God, the Son in human flesh, has perfectly, fully trusted his God through the darkest and most awful thing imaginable, trusted him as a human being? What is there left to do except for him to be raised from the dead and death itself to be put to death by death? Nothing to be done except for Jesus to be resurrected. But he's not just resurrected for himself. He's resurrected for you. He's resurrected so a new life can live in you. The obedience of the one man brings life. Life to the many. Oh, my friends, we live in a Christian culture today that so often wants to define us in terms of our fallenness in Adam. So all we can ever hope to be is broken and forgiven, struggling wretches who always have to keep running back to God our Father because we blow it so often. When instead, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit means a new reality comes to live in you, a reality beyond yourself, a reality that you can live in, a reality that can change your life. And when people see your life changed, might start to change their lives if they would just crack their hearts open to the reality of the resurrected Jesus. When I was a kid, I had a paper route. A paper was something that people used to read to get the news. I, you, um, you may not realize that. And they used to deliver it to your house. And my brother and I had a paper route. And we divided up this big paper route into two sections because I was the oldest. My dad told me, you got to take the part of the route that's up in the mountains. And he's going to have the lowlands. That didn't seem fair to me, you know, but I took it. I had... 
It was not only that I had the hardest paper route to ride my bicycle on, which was not a 10-speed, it was a one-speed or whatever speed I could make it go, loaded down in the front baskets and the back baskets with hundreds of papers. But it wasn't, that wasn't bad enough. I also had the paper route that had two things. It had the worst customers ever to be on the planet Earth. Christmas time came, my brother would come back with like $50 in tips. Now, $50 in the 1960s was a lot of money. I would come back with like three dozen boxes of chocolate-covered cherries. I hate chocolate-covered cherries to this day. But not only that, I had the paper route with the meanest dogs on the paper route on the, ever lived. One house at the end of the paper route had three dogs that were like Cujo's demonic offspring. As a matter of fact, I was so scared of those dogs that I would never, ever, ever even go in the yard. I would stand and throw the paper as hard as I could. One day, one Sunday morning, we were late for church, and my father said, we're not going to get to church on time. Jump in the car, and I'll help you deliver your paper. And we got in the car, drove around, threw papers out, out the windows. I told my dad, I said, this is wonderful family bonding. We should do this more often, Dad. We got to that final house. My dad stopped the car. I got out. I stopped at the gate to throw the paper. And my dad said, what are you throwing that paper for, son? Walk up to the porch and put it on their porch. And he looked up and he said, why are all those papers on the roof? How'd those get in the trees? And I said, there's these dogs, dad, and I can't go in there. He said, son, take their paper to the porch. I said, daddy, I can't. I'm scared. I'm like 11 or 12 years old. These, you don't understand these dogs. They almost bitten me twice when I went in there. I can't go in there. They're just too scary. My dad said, son, go in and deliver the paper. And I started to cry. I said, daddy, I just can't. I'm scared. He said, all right, then. He got out of the car. It was a, a, a tree limb, a short tree limb on the side of the road. He picked it up, got a rock. He said, you bring the papers and come with me. Walked through the gate. Here come the dogs. Snarling. Get out of the way. I want to eat that little boy behind you. <laughs> one comes charging at my dad. The big ones come charging at my dad. My dad doesn't even blink an eye. Steps at it. I'm thinking, what in the world are you doing? Let's run. Boom, he kicks the dog right in the head. Now, for you animal lovers, you animal lovers, I'm sorry. These were evil demonic dogs, okay? And... Um, the dog, I've never seen a dog unconscious. That dog was unconscious for like 30 <laughs> seconds. Then the second dog came. My dad put the rock in his coat pocket, took the tree limb, bam! The poor little thing rolls over. The third dog comes. My dad just takes the rock out and shakes it at him, and he just takes off around the house. I'm standing there thinking, my gosh, I, how did I not know... My dad is Batman. I'm, you know. <laughs> the next day came. I got to that house. Now I was on my bike. No dad. Got to the gate. The dogs came out. I stood there and I was going to throw the paper again. And I said, I'm not throwing the paper. Guy Blakemore is my dad. Something of him is in me. 
I never threw their paper ever again. Oh, sometimes I ran. <laughs> but I never, ever threw the paper ever again. See, it's not just something of Jesus is in you. Jesus is in you. Live in him.